Welcome to Scientific American's Science Talk, posted on November 5th, 2014. I'm Steve Mursky. And our health and medicine correspondent, Dina Fine-Marin, is in New Orleans at the annual conference of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. One of the conference speakers is Daniel Bausch, and Dina caught up with him to talk about Ebola earlier today. Dan Bausch is in the Department of Tropical Medicine and Section of Infectious Diseases at the Tulane University Health Sciences Center. He specializes in the research and control of emerging tropical viruses. He spent part of his career with the CDC Special Pathogens Branch, and he spent a lot of time in sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and Asia, combating pathogens such as Ebola and Lassa viruses, Hantavirus, and SARS coronavirus. He serves as a frequent consultant for the World Health Organization, the UN, and the National Institutes of Health. Here's Dina Fine-Marin and Daniel Bausch. You've been talking a lot about the Ebola big picture. Can you talk in brief about why we didn't see Ebola coming in West Africa? Prior to this outbreak, the largest outbreak that we've ever had before was 425 cases in the northern area of Uganda in 2000-2001. So while that was a tragedy for the people who lived in that relatively remote region of Uganda, of course on the big picture this is something that doesn't really compare with the number of cases of HIV and TB and malaria and many other diseases on a daily basis. And so we really had in our minds that Ebola was that sort of disease that appears sporadically in remote regions of Africa, causes extreme tragedy for those populations, but not really something that we need to uh, have on our radar on the the bigger picture. And we've been talking a lot about this week about next steps looking forward. What do you think we need to do to be prepared for the next Ebola-like threat? So there's two different levels, taking Ebola first before we get to Ebola-like. So Ebola, I I don't know what we can do to really um, stop this outbreak. We're trying our best. Obviously, things are out of control. We need to make sure it gets contained within the three countries that uh, are presently the the epidemic countries. We need to obviously block transmission and give the best care we can to people in those countries. Not easy to do. We're scaling up as rapidly as we can. It's not easy to scale up. It's taking too much time. So we'll we'll see. You know, we have to do our best. I I kind of liken it to that sort of. You know, your your a family member has a is very sick with a terrible disease. The chances, perhaps, of them pulling through may not be that high, but you're still going to give them the best treatment and and have the best hope and and do everything you can for them. And that's kind of what we're we're doing right now for um, those countries in West Africa. And but I think. We need to look past that as well. If there's any silver lining in this, we need to make sure that some of the um, therapeutics and vaccines that have been uh, have been on an experimental level so far, that we really use this opportunity to make sure we have tools, real-world available tools for people, hopefully for this outbreak, but if not for this outbreak, for the next outbreak, and make sure that you know we, we have something of worth that comes out of this. So that's an, a, a very important thing that I think we need to push on. A difficult thing to do, but nevertheless an opportunity to, to go there. Um, on the bigger picture, you know, I think we're learning the lesson, and this is always the challenge in public health. Public health people say, well, we don't have any problem. There's no emergency, so why would we spend $10 million on preparation for one thing or another? And, of course, then something happens, and we, we, we cut our funding in public health, 
And uh, so we say, well, uh, too bad we didn't have that, and an emergency does happen, and then you spend hundreds of millions of dollars trying to catch up, and of course at the cost of many lives. So we need to kind of remember that. It's, it's, a, it's a lesson we've learned many times before. It's just kind of human nature, but nevertheless, we need to make sure that funding for global health research, for um, preparedness, that that uh, funding is maintained. And I think a lot of the antecedents of this outbreak and what we're seeing has been a lot of talk about who did what right and wrong in the last nine months. You know, did WHO respond? Did this group do one thing or another? And certainly mistakes were made. Certainly we all could have done better. But I think really if we want to look historically in this, um, it's not so much what happened in the last nine months. It's what's happened in the last five years. And if we look at funding for WHO, funding for global health research, funding for many of the organizations that plan and respond and, and, and would be our preparedness arm, then we've taken a hit in those last five years and we're seeing the results. And this week also there was separately an Institute of Medicine Ebola conference in D.C. that you were at as well as here in Louisiana. Uh, one of the speakers on that panel from EPA the Environmental Protection Agency talked about how, indeed, it looks like patients, uh, Ebola patients, generate about, he said, 30 or 40 times the amount of medical waste that normal patients generate. Can you talk a little bit about how it's possible to handle that level of waste both in West Africa and here in the United States? So much of that, of course, is the PPE or personal protective equipment that people need to wear in order to treat these patients. And so, and you can't stay in that very long. Almost all of it is disposable. So each time someone, a healthcare worker is going in to, to visit and treat the patient with Ebola, that person can stay in for maybe an hour, hour and a half, two hours, um, perhaps and then has to go through the doffing and decontamination procedure, and then all that gets thrown out. Um, so there's a huge amount of waste, in addition to the, relative to that, the relatively small waste that comes from the patient uh, himself or herself that you know, consists of these people are having 8 to 10 um, liters a day of diarrheal stools um, during the, the acute phases of the illness, and then all the other things that we know of in terms of needles and gloves and, and routine things. So you are generating a lot of waste. Um, the, the situation is almost more complex for that in the United States than it is in Africa in many ways. Um, in Africa, that would get taken to a burn pit and put in that burn pit and, and, and then incinerated. Um, we don't have a huge problem with environmental contamination in that way in terms of the virus, it's not particularly stable in the environment, so in those burn pits, we don't really have a, a, a big concern about it, you know, not completely getting burned or leaking into the groundwater and that sort of thing. That's not how people get infected with this virus. In the United States, of course, we um, are somewhat beholden to higher tech solutions, which in some ways are a little bit um, more problematic in, in terms of treating all that waste, and, and we need um, autoclaves or incinerators that can handle that sort of thing. Uh, it's not the actual inactivation that's particularly difficult. It's just the process of getting the waste from, of course, the, the front line of, of care and interaction with the patient to the place, safely to the place where it can be incinerated or autoclaved. And considering we still don't know how long Ebola can live on various surfaces, another topic at the Institute of Medicine uh, conversation was about how we would do those study designs to answer those kinds of questions. It sounds like since we don't even have that baseline data, we don't know how to even begin those studies. What would you say is next step there? We, we have some data, um, but it's not as much as we would like. And when people ask me that question, and how long does Ebola last in the environment, I, I usually answer that it lasts hours to days. And it depends 
on the environmental conditions. And so um, if there's a high heat, if it's really hot out, if there's a lot of light, then the, the uh, virus will be inactivated relatively rapidly. And if it's relatively cool, and, you know, the studies that show it lasting um, weeks in the environment, most of those were essentially, you know, temperatures of refrigerators. That's not what the, the ambient temperature is in, in most places, especially most places where an Ebola outbreak is happening. Um, but nevertheless, we do need more studies to look at that. One of, the, one of the problems that we've seen is that our research agenda in the last 10 years for diseases like Ebola and other things that we call select agents, some of these highly pathogenic um, diseases and, and viruses, has really focused very specifically on products. Um, we've said, okay, we want vaccines, we want diagnostics, we want um, therapeutics in these tools that, you know, of course are important and we do want those. But there's been much less emphasis on really just understanding the, the natural history of the disease, if you will. When is the virus shed and what, in what particular fluids um, in a patient who's infected with Ebola virus? How long does it last in the environment? You know, those studies have really not been our focus uh, of funding. And so we're, we're paying a little bit, um, you know, the, the price now of not having some of the just very basic, what seem to be simple data that we'd like to have. And there's been so much talk from the World Health Organization and CDC in the last two weeks about issuing new guidelines for PPE, personal protective equipment. Um, what, I guess, changes really need to be made there to indeed make a more robust protection system? So um, there was a guidelines committee that was put together at WHO um, that met uh, some weeks back. I actually chaired that committee. Um, and so, you know, this get got about uh, 12 or so different experts from different organizations, MSF, CDC, NIOSH, um, WHO, of course, various other places, together to discuss the PPE issue and, and figure out what's the right thing to wear. There's a lot of opinion. Unfortunately, there's very little data. And so we run into this situation where people say, well, I like to use this and I think it's safest to use that. And someone else says, well, I think it's safest to use that and oh, you need one thing or another. So we, we came through and, and I think issued the best guidelines that just came out a few days ago. They are, um, I think they're a useful tool for people, but we, we definitely need evidence base to inform that and to go further. And you know, I don't anticipate that that will be the end of it, that now we have the PPE that you need. We say, okay, these are the best guidelines that we have, but we're going to need to work with this and try to, again, collect some evidence. So this is more, um, more based on scientific data rather than on particular you know, consensus opinion, albeit from experts. And what can we learn so far from the successes in Nigeria and Senegal about apparently being Ebola-free now and the hints of success that are happening in Liberia? So I think um, Nigeria and Senegal, part of this, one, one shouldn't be naive to think that it's related to the resources that a country has. And so this is happening, the large outbreak in Guinea, Sierra Leone, Liberia, this is happening in some of the poorest countries in the world, countries that have been through years of civil unrest and civil war. It's decimated the public health infrastructure, decimated the medical system. It's not by chance that this is happening there. This is happening because those countries were not prepared when a virus that's this dangerous and, and communicable in, in some phases of disease at least gets into to a system that's 
completely unprepared for it. And what I mean by that is just very simple things. First of all, you go to the hospital and you're sick, and things that we would, of course, take for granted, that in the hospital there's running water and soap and gloves and clean needles and things like that, are just not routinely available in, in Sierra Leone. We've been struggling and trying to work with this for many years in, in Sierra Leone and in Guinea and, and projects that I've been working with. So it starts there, um, and then we, we need to come in, obviously, with international response to try and help those countries out, but we've outstripped our resources just because of the scale of this, and now we're, we're all behind in trying to catch up. When, um, on a few occasions, cases ha have uh, snuck out to other neighboring countries, Fortunately, um, certainly in the case of Senegal, also Nigeria, they, they've, they've gotten out to countries that have considerably more resources um, than Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea. And so Nigeria is overall not a resource-poor country, nor is, is Senegal. These are, these are places where there are resources. There's more public health infrastructure. And, of course, because of the importance of what was going on in their neighbors in the epidemic countries, they were ready for it, and they you know, kind of got on the case pretty rapidly. So, fortunately, we, we dodged a bullet in those two countries, and we don't think there's any more transmission of, uh, of Ebola in Nigeria and Senegal. As you know, there's recently been an imported case in Mali. We're hoping that we'll have the same result there, that uh, we won't have any onward transmission too, too soon to know, really, in Mali yet. And, uh, and then again, we, we really need to be vigilant in all those surrounding countries. That's really where we're most vulnerable. There's been a big focus on imported cases in the United States and a lot of fear about that. And I don't want to minimize, obviously, that's important to those people and to our country. But still, this is a West African problem principally, and we need to act in West Africa to stop it. We've heard just a tiny bit about uh, the number of uh, clinicians and health workers from other areas in Africa that have arrived to try to help in West Africa from Kenya and elsewhere. Um, how important are they in this response, and what sort of numbers are we talking about there? I don't know numbers overall. I mean, I think, so for example, I believe Cuba has, uh, has um, put somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 healthcare workers uh, available, um, I think a lesser number from most of the other countries. The United States, of course, trying to to uh, put the numbers up with training and get people into the field. So um, those numbers are increasing. A huge challenge really is the coordination of all those groups. And so, you know, most of them uh, will deploy personnel to the field that have varied degrees of training um, may or may not speak the, the language that uh, is the language of the country or the language of the international group. English, of course, is what uh, many of the people speak are, are French, but uh, if you don't speak one of those two languages, there may be communication issues. And then, as I say, some of these people, probably a very, very small amount, have worked with this sort of disease before. Most have not. Many have not been in that sort of situation before, or some sometimes maybe not even in West Africa before. So the challenge of even though we welcome the, the groups that are participating and we need the labor, so that's definitely encouraged, but the challenge of coordinating all that and getting it into one coordinated response is, uh, is a very large one. Officially, who is charged with that type of coordination? Is that a WHO role? Is MSF effectively taking on that role, or it's sort of a free-for-all in some ways? I, I don't think there's one group. Um, maybe uh, somewhere in between free-for-all and uh, singularly focused coordinated efforts. Um, so there are various different groups that are doing this. So um, from the United States, the Department of Defense and the Public Health Service uh, are the implementers, if you will, of the Obama plan. 
Um, certainly MSF is always a key player in this, WHO with guidance and training and, and different things that they provide, um, CDC and to some degree as well. So it's it's varied groups, but that coordination even between those groups is is still challenging. Partly just because, as I mentioned earlier, the scale of this, you know, you can say you, you want to coordinate, but um, when you have the, the communications are difficult in some of these areas. The roads are, are uh, difficult. The flights now going into the country are not necessarily available in terms of the timing that you need. So there, there are just many, many logistical issues to try and get this set up. You know, one of the things, for example, that uh, with the U.S. government response in Liberia that they discovered right from the beginning was that the, the airstrip at the airport in Monrovia was not adequate, actually, for the planes that they needed to fly in the supplies. And so even before you get to anything related to Ebola, you need to repave the airstrip in order to, to get that in. And, and that, that sort of thing is... Uh, is not unusual, and, and we can't underestimate the logistical impediments to implementate, implementing the, the program. And the final question I wanted to ask you about is regarding the age distribution of Ebola patients and survival, something that Doctors Without Borders touched on a little bit when they were uh, presenting last night. Can you speak to what we're seeing there? Yeah, um, so in the, the presentation last night here at the American Society of Topical Medicine meetings, um, Armand Sprecher touched on some of the data that they had that uh, some of the younger kids, so children under five, the, the death rates were high for that group. Some of the uh, publication actually that will be coming out in the New England Journal today um, that uh, myself with many other collaborators worked on, um, we, we showed that in Guinea it was actually an older group, people over 40 or 45 I think it was, who were the, the ones most at risk of death. I think when we look at that, there's a couple different things. First of all, we need to take it all with a grain of salt because there's a fair amount of case-finding artifact. And, and what I mean by that is most of these data come from people who have come to isolation and treatment centers. And so that may not be just uh, certainly not everyone, and it might not be a randomly selected group. And so if we have, for example, you think about the, the data that uh, Armand from MSF showed about the, the young kids having a higher death rate. Um, there's still a considerable resistance about presenting and being recognized of having Ebola and coming to a treatment center in West Africa. So thinking, you know, as a parent might, that when you don't want your kid to go there, right? So you keep your kid at home and hope that your kid gets better and give them some medications for malaria or Tylenol or whatever it may be. And uh, if your kid does get better, then they stay at home. If they're not particularly sick, you know, they don't really get that bad. And, and we know that there are some people, of course, have very severe Ebola and, and get sick and and die, and other people's other people milder at least and survive. So, if you're a parent, maybe you're at home, and as your kid gets sicker and sicker, there's a certain point, like we would all do, they say, "Okay, now my child is so sick, and and they perceive that your child is at risk of dying, so they have no choice but now to go and present to the treatment center and come to recognition and have their kid." Um, admitted and diagnosed as Ebola. And if that happens, of course, that only the sickest kids where the parents who are most worried about them bring their kid to the hospital, then you're, you're, that's a group that's going to be, you know, uh, in particular, seem to be at particular risk. So that may be going on. That said, if we look at the data from MSF and the data in the publication coming out today of um, young children and older people dying, and and recognize that in this area of West Africa, um, 45 is an older person, right? We still 
we still tend to think of that as relatively young. Nevertheless, um, if you if you think that the life expectancy in some areas of Guinea, Sierra Leone, Liberia, you know, is probably around 50, so someone who's 45 is is can be considered older. And we look at diseases that cause a lot of fluid loss through diarrhea. So, for example, take cholera. Um, and who dies with cholera, it's really the very young and the very old. And those are people who just can't really tolerate the volume loss. And when you have 8 or 10 liters of, uh, of diarrheal stool every day, you're losing lots and lots and lots of fluids. And, of course, if you're not in a position where we can replete, give those fluids back either through drinking water or oral rehydration solution, ideally, or through intravenous fluids, which many people are not due to our limited capacity to provide care in West Africa, the people who can't tolerate that are people who are older or younger or very young. Um, a young child just can't lose that much fluid and still have enough to perfuse, uh, enough liquid in their, their veins, if you will, in their arteries to perfuse all their organs. And so they develop organ system, multi-organ system failure and, and die. And then same the older people, of course, the same situation where they're not as... Uh, as robust, if you will, as people who are in their 20s and 30s and you know, kind of can handle that and losing the fluids and not have complications of, of uh, coronary artery disease and other things that go with that and for an older person. So I think that may be what we're seeing um, in those groups, that uh, these are the people just, again, like, like cholera, if you will, that uh, just can't handle that degree of volume loss. One addendum to that, the Doctors Without Borders data, I think, suggests it doesn't matter what day you show up for treatment in terms of the course of your Ebola disease and when you are presenting uh, for care at a clinic. What can you say about that? Is that more about the level of care that we can offer or rehydration? I think... Uh, well, first of all, even MSF would agree that those are preliminary data that we know, still need to, to dig deeper and, and kind of sort out. And But there are many different things going on there. I think one of the things that may be going on that you alluded to is, of course, it only matters, you know, getting treatment earlier only only matters if there's treatment, right? So if you come on day two and someone say, this is great, you're here on day two, you're here early, and now we can give the intravenous fluids if you need them and, and different manage your electrolytes and make sure your potassium levels are adequate and those sorts of things, then, of course, showing up early will be better. But if there's none of that available, if you have a situation where people can't give you those fluids, can't replete your potassium and, and different things that you need, then, then, of course, there's no association with coming early because it doesn't impact at all the course of disease. And so certainly um, in many of the facilities, they, they can give those things, but right now in many we unfortunately cannot. And that's just, it's not the medicine that we want to be giving. It's not that we think it's okay to give people lesser treatment or anything like that. It's just the sheer capacity of this and trying to develop, you know, get enough beds to bring people in. We, we do think now that, um, first of all, the bed capacity is too slowly, at least in the beginning, but has been increasing with MSF and U.S. government and other groups from the U.K. and, and other countries that have been in uh, building wards and providing beds and labor. Um, somewhat ironically, as I think you mentioned earlier, that there seems to be a, a slight cresting right now of the number of cases in Liberia. Whether that really means that the, the cases are going down or whether that's just a small blip and we'll have to see. Um, it is true that the, in Liberia right now, there's all of a sudden over the last week or so, maybe 10 days, 
that uh, there are a lot of available beds and a problem that we, we didn't have before. And I hope that means that there's less cases. What it can also mean with um, less patients, of course, is now the, the existing capacity that we have can be the individual care for each person. You know, obviously, it's intuitive. If you, if you had 100 patients last week and now you're down to 40 patients, then the individual care you can provide those 40 with the same staff is better. So we, we might uh, surmise that they could be getting more individual care and you know, better care in, in coming weeks. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com. We have all of our Ebola coverage organized on a single web page. Just Google Scientific American and Ebola, and any of the first batch of articles that come up will take you to the main page, which is called Ebola, What You Need to Know. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.